Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, we'll first hear a segment from our Transatlantic Intelligence Series, segments produced by Reverend Ben Johnson, a senior editor here at Acton. In today's episode, Ben speaks with Juan Pena, the Secretary General of the Foundation for the Advancement of Liberty in Madrid, Spain. They have just released the World Electoral Freedom Index, ranking nations of the world according to how free their elections really are. Juan and Ben break down what exactly makes free elections and its importance in a free democracy. Then on our Upstream segment, Acton's Director of Publishing, Jordan Baller, speaks with some of our summer interns about the new Disney Pixar movie, Incredibles 2. And with that, let's get started. This is my right. Welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence. I'm Reverend Ben Johnson. Democratic socialists say they want all decisions to be made by the people, but how free are the elections that make those decisions? What elements go into making a free election? And is there a link between economics and free elections in a democracy? My guest today has authored a report on that very topic. Juan Piña is the Secretary General of the Foundation for the Advancement of Liberty in Madrid, Spain. They've recently released the World Electoral Freedom Index, which ranks all of the nations of the world according to how free their elections are. He's going to be discussing his findings with us here on Transatlantic Intelligence. Juan, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. How would you pronounce the name of your organization in Spanish? It would be the Fundación para el Avance de la Libertad, or Fundalib for short. Hence the name of your website, fundalib.org. That's F-U-N-D-A-L-I-B dot O-R-G. In English, you're known as the Foundation for the Advancement of Liberty. Your work is a blessing in any language. Tell us what it is that you do in Madrid. Our purpose is twofold. On the one hand, we are, well, yet another pro-liberty think tank defending capitalism and civil liberties, like the index that we are commenting today, or technology for free market activism. Like, for instance, we are now developing a mobile device application to show how an individual capitalization system for pensions is more fair and way more robust than the current state-run pay-as-you-go pension system. And then on the other hand, we are an incubator of grassroots movements. For instance, we are uh, helping the first stages in the developments of organizations like the Spanish Taxpayers Union and other advocacy groups in civil society. This report really is much different than other reports that measure electoral freedom, Freedom House, or other uh, reports of that sort. You had a team of scholars look at 50 separate factors, I believe it was 55 factors, that shape a democratic culture. They found that it essentially came down to four pivotal elements that are necessary to creating free democratic elections. What are those four pivotal elements? Well, uh, the Political Development uh, Index uh, sets the preconditions for electoral freedom. So the juridical, institutional and uh, economic development uh, preconditions uh, for for each country uh, to be prepared for electoral freedom. Therefore, it only uh, accounts for 10% of the the final score that countries are are given. Then the other three scores, 30% each, are the active suffrage, passive suffrage and electoral empowerment. Now, active suffrage is the freedom to elect and to decide through the people you elect uh, how the course of um, politics in a country actually um, uh, should be. Passive suffrage is even more interesting because it is very much neglected by 
other um, indices or, or research uh, about uh, democracy and electoral systems. And it is actually the freedom to be elected, to participate in the political process, to create political parties, to have access uh, to the media and to uh, finance uh, for the political process and uh, and to participate uh, in the in the voting process in the voting day and the electoral campaign in a free and fair and honest way and then the electoral empowerment which is the last of the four sub indices um, is the effective uh, the effective power of the political actors voters and their representatives to actually change things measured with uh, well a, a number of, of indicators that would be very very long to to particularly um, discuss so all in all uh, the, the these three large components plus the political development uh, or the preconditions index provide what we call the the world electoral freedom index so the four elements they looked at were political development active suffrage passive suffrage and electoral empowerment with those four elements in mind, which nations did the best and which ones ranked the most poorly? The absolute winner of, of this uh, first edition of the World Electoral Freedom Index has been the Republic of Ireland, very closely followed by Iceland and Switzerland, which are in a, in a tie in positions two and three. Uh, in fact, they have the same position because the difference is on the third decimal that, that we are not showing in, in our table. And then fourth is Finland, fifth is Australia, and then Denmark, Portugal, surprisingly the Dominican Republic, and then ninth is the United Kingdom, and tenth is uh, Lithuania. That would be the top of the um, of the index. Ireland is not only the winner because it is the, the the first ranking country, but also because it is the only one within the um, classification of outstanding electoral freedom because it is the only the only country with more than 80 points in in our scale. And then in terms of the worst uh, performing countries, we would have. Um, uh, North Korea, Oman, China, South Sudan, Eritrea, Qatar, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, and finally Brunei. Of course, Brunei, known as the Sultanate of Brunei, so perhaps not so surprising that way. What many of our listeners would find surprising, though, particularly those who are Americans, is how poorly the United States of America did on this. As you noted, they were not in the top 10. In fact, they're not in the top 20 or the top 30. They rank 44th. Why so low? Why not 34, 24? <laughs> it is not so low. Uh, just imagine that there are 198 countries measured, and they, this includes very many microstates and very small countries, so it is not so easy to be uh, up in the top. But still, I would say that the U.S. should perform better. Uh, one factor that makes the, the U.S. Uh, not, so, not look so, so good is uh, probably the diversity of electoral systems uh, in the country, uh, where some of them are performing better than others. And then uh, it is a very diverse country electorally, uh, as you know. And, and this, um, this made the, the, the US average uh, be, be a little worse than, than other countries in the, in the world. Still, as I said, it is the, the US are classified as having, uh, as having very high uh, high electoral freedom um, compared to very many other countries. Our own country, Spain, where we are based, is performing much worse in position 56, although it has uh, high levels of uh, active suffrage and political development because it is very much um, uh, taken down by, by the very bad performance in passive suffrage, for instance. So all in all, I think it is good that we have 55 different indicators and the four sub-indices to really classify countries 
in a reasonable or, or in a uh, sensible uh, in a sensible way but yes uh, one other common uh, factor in countries performing well as i was saying is the relatively small um, uh, size of of those countries including australia because we are measuring the size in population not not territory and uh, in fact among the 10 best performing countries only the united kingdom is a, a really large country in terms of population. All others are countries with around 10 million or less, or 15 or 20 million um, population, which is uh, interesting because we, we didn't expect this, this kind of, um, of correlation between the actual size of an electoral system and uh, the amount of electoral freedom each individual has. Interesting. So when it comes to democracy, at least, small is beautiful. I wonder what other commonalities your team of researchers may have found among democracies that did very well. Were there certain other freedoms that uh, tended to crop up in nations that had very free elections? In terms of, uh, of how this index correlates with, uh, with other freedoms or what uh, common uh, threats we would find uh, in the best and worst performing countries, of course, there are, there are some things that, uh, that need to be stressed. Economic freedom provides a general background that facilitates all other freedoms. And certainly electoral freedom uh, is, is also affected by, by economic freedom. In fact, there are very few countries where a high level of economic freedom does not result in an equally high level of electoral freedom. Uh, I could mention Singapore, some of the Gulf Emirates, or to a lesser extent countries like Japan, South Korea or Taiwan, which are relatively better off than their region is uh, in, on average, but are still lacking in terms of electoral freedom. But those would be like more or less the only exceptions. Generally speaking, a high amount of economic freedom provides the base and, and then the reality uh, proves the fact that electoral freedom is better off where there is a high amount of economic freedom. And this is not surprising because the same happens when you measure uh, press freedom like the Reporters Without Borders organization uh, does or when you measure um, religious freedom or other freedoms. Um, normally, uh, the common factor is uh, a big, a good economic freedom background. So that, that would be one, one conclusion that, that uh, with the said exceptions and, and others, but normally there is a tendency uh, to, to this. I think that uh, there is a large correlation between electoral freedom and a certain uh, culture of tolerance, mutual respect, uh, social and political pluralism, and limited government. Uh, well, uh, generally speaking, countries with a Northern European or especially with an Anglo-Saxon political background and based on common law tend to be uh, to have deeper electoral freedom than other countries, even democratic ones. Okay, now uh, I, and I wonder if I could uh, just break in for just one moment. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States got into some trouble not uh, too long ago mm -hmm. by using the term Anglo-American. <laughs> and uh, you speak in the report of the Anglo-Saxon cultural area. What do you mean by that? Well, basically one thing, common law, uh, the, the, the kind of law that developed in England and then uh, spread to very many other countries, which includes a large uh, tradition of parliamentarianism, uh, which other uh, countries, uh, even democratic countries, are more recent in, in that and have um, sometimes more complex electoral systems where the relationship between the elector and the elected 
is less less direct than than it would be in countries like the UK or the US or Australia or Ireland or, or other countries. So I think that this was possibly one common factor in countries performing well in, in our index. Of course, one of the arguments that socialists have made is that socialism democratizes society because it spreads the wealth around by redistributing it from oligarchs to the people. It helps empower people. What would the conclusion of your report be for those who make that argument? Well, I think that um, the conclusions are obvious. Well, socialism and, and of course, communism rather incompatible with, with, uh, with electoral freedom. Let's take, for instance, uh, the case of the remaining communist countries in the world. No matter if they are close to economic freedom, like Cuba or North Korea, or more open to a limited free market, like Vietnam or China, it doesn't matter. All communist regimes that remain in the world are equally lacking in terms of political freedom, and of course, in terms of the very limited, not to call it fake, electoral freedom that they stage. So generally, there are certain traits that cluster together when it comes to freedom economic liberty, freedom of the press, and religious liberty cluster together. And when you have those backgrounds, particularly with a culture of whether it's Anglo-American or Spanish or European in other ways that have a background and grounding in parliamentary democracy, tend to result in a high degree of electoral freedom around the world. And uh, those that have a, a culture that is not influenced by those things that have either a state church or enforced atheism in the case of uh, communist nations and which crack down on the press and highly regulate economic liberty uh, and therefore cut off your sphere of personal autonomy also tend to restrict your autonomy of the vote. Yes, and uh, I would like to stress uh, one interesting conclusion, and it is that Latin America and Portugal, for instance, are fast approaching. I mean, the, the top of the top are still the, the, the common law-based countries uh, emerged from the Anglo-Saxon political worldview, to, to, to put it that way. But then Latin America is uh, approaching very fast. There are a number of countries. It has been a surprise that the Dominican Republic is performing so well. But then if you if you take countries like Uruguay or Chile or Colombia, there are, they are very high up in the 20 or, or 30 first positions of the of the ranking. And I think this is quite interesting because, of course, those are the non-socialist countries in Latin America. Uh, if you take other countries like uh, Venezuela, of course, or Cuba, they are performing much, much worse. So the takeaway, free elections don't just happen. Socialism is negatively correlated with free elections. And free elections stem from nations that value economic freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and that are informed by religious principles in general from a certain cultural inheritance. You might even say free elections stem from a free and virtuous society. You can find out how your country did by looking at the World Electoral Freedom Index produced by the Foundation for the Advancement of Liberty based in Madrid, their website, F-U-N-D-A-L-I-B dot O-R-G. That's Fundalib. Dot org, the Foundation for the Advancement of Liberty. We've been speaking with its Secretary General Juan Pina. Juan, thank you so much for joining us here on Radio Free Acting. Thank you very much indeed.
Join us, along with over 1,000 friends and supporters of Acton, for Acton Institute's 2018 Annual Dinner to be held on Wednesday, October 17 at the JW Marriott in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This dinner celebrates our 28th year of working to promote a free and virtuous society. And it is our pleasure to announce that this year's special guest and speaker is renowned author and pastor, Reverend Timothy Keller. There will also be a special address from Acton's president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico. You can register for this event at actonacton.org. This is Jenna Suhita on Radio Free Acton. I'm here with uh, Victoria Antrim and Jordan Baller. We're here to talk about The Incredibles, the second Incredibles film today. Uh, so... Jordan, what what do you think was your big takeaway from the film? I know you wrote an article about it, but what was the big message that you thought they were trying to convey in this film? Yeah, I had a, a short piece where I, I raised a number of the possibly interesting uh, angles in the movie. Like like many good films, it's got lots of things that you could talk about. I suppose the, the one big thing I'd like to highlight is this uh, dynamic between legality and liberty in the film, right? Um I mean, it carries over from the first one. It sort of picks up right where the first film leaves off. I don't. I think even chronologically, it's it seems like almost right after the the climax of the of the of the first film. And you've still got supers being illegal as such. So there's this dynamic between what their identity is um, by nature. It seems like right. They're born this way. They're super beings of some kind. There's a dynamism there. We don't actually know quite how it works. The science isn't really given to us in the films. It's just sort of accepted here. You've got these people with superpowers, these supers. They come from somewhere. And uh, then you've got this kind of legal order or something that happens. Um, we're not really given the, the legal history. We assume it's the United States and there's some sort of constitution, but we don't know what the jurisprudence of it all is and the uh, the politics of it is, except that that, that really forms the the backdrop of the action in the second film is, is doing something politically about uh, both in the public square and through legal means to address this, uh, this ban on supers. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the question of, of unjust laws comes up in the film and it's actually a really old question, you know, I mean, all the way back to Romans 13 deals with, you know, the idea of unjust leaders and how to respond to that. What do you think does Incredibles add anything to that, to that debate? What do you think is their idea that they're putting forward? Well, it's hard to, I mean, in some sense, you don't want to read too much into it in terms of what the, what the, uh, the makers of the film are trying to communicate as the, the pedagogical lesson. There's a lot to learn, I think, from the film. It brings this perennial dis dilemma up to date in a way, um, or at least allows us to imagine what it would be like in a, in another world where the stakes are different because it's not us. So we can enter in sympathetically into some of the characters' dilemmas without, you know, you could point to analogs and contemporary problems, uh, but it, it's it, it in a way the 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 culture war aspects of it um, are a little less freighted. So this idea you, you mentioned the biblical context that that uh, even in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that that rulers are subject to God's law and that there's a divine law above all that that judges everyone that they're subject to. The the legal maxim going back to Augustine and Aquinas and Martin Luther King, more in the 20th century, that an unjust law is no law at all. I mean, you get this dilemma. How do you respond when 
um, you're presented with a very clear case of injustice. Do you try to reform from within the system in a kind of incremental way? Do you try to subvert it? Do you directly go against it? These are the, deli- the, the sort of options that are presented to us in this film. That's great. So you're, you're, the title of your article was um, Superheroes Are Great Again, right? So what makes <laughs> these superheroes different from the other superheroes we've seen on the big screen? Well, there's, I mean, there's a brightness about the, I guess, the, 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 the graphical elements as opposed to some of the real life action ones. So I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of the Marvel films. I'm a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, also, the, the DC films, those especially, there's a kind of a grittiness to them. There's, there's more of a move towards realism where the, the animated venue or the animated um, medium makes things a little bit more brighter. And uh, it's not that there aren't dark elements in this film. I mean, there's some pretty traumatic scenes. Like, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but you know, there's there's a. I don't know if it was like this when you get you guys went, but there was a guy who stood up at the front and was like, "There's going to be scenes where if you have epilepsy or something, uh, beware. Come talk to me if you want to know when those scenes are coming. And then when those scenes come, it's pretty obvious." <laughs> um, but I mean, there's a sense in which they're back to being super. You know, that's just who they are. Uh, there's this perennial dilemma of superheroes, how to be a good steward of the gifts you've been given um, from the mundane that we all face every day to having these fantastic gifts. So um, there's a sense in which superheroes are back to being great again in these kinds of films, where, as opposed to like um, morosely uh, worrying about all of the NUE of modern life and stuff like that. So. Speaking of super, our favorite character, <laughs> Edna, had one really great line. She said, parenting... When done properly, is a heroic act. Yeah. Do you think The Incredibles lived up to that? Well, sure. I mean, you know, that's another dynamic of the film, the 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 place of the family that carries over again from the first film. Uh, in a way, a kind of a comment or at least a window into the dynamics, the, the challenges of modern parenting uh, in a caricatured form, right? An exaggerated form, of course, right? Where you've got superpowers, but the role reversals of the traditional, you know, even within the context of their family history, you know, Mr. Incredible had been the one getting a lot of the pub. And so there's this kind of subtext of, well, now it's finally my turn uh, for Elastigirl to go out and have her day in the, in the sun, so to speak. So, I mean, in that sense, it, you know, the, it, it's, it's like many of these kinds of good films they are pitched at two levels. It's entertaining for the children, but there's some, some deeper stuff there for the adults. And I'm sure every parent, you know, I could kind of look around in the theater. Everybody who's had kids had lots of moments they could relate to in terms of the challenges of parenting. Yeah, I smirked at the Common Core satire with the math problems. Sure, the new math. Yeah, why did they? What was wrong with the old math? All that kind of. Yeah, exactly. Why would you change math? <laughs> uh, so no, you you hit on a good point there, and I I thought when we were thinking about doing this interview and stuff, uh, Victoria and I were saying that you know in the first film. You had this theme where Mr. Incredible's kind of coming to this self-discovery. You know, he has that whole line about, I'm not strong enough. I have to be stronger. And, you know, and the the movie, I think at least the way I saw it, you know, it comes that he isn't strong enough. He needs his family to help him. You know, he can still kind of be, you know, the breadwinner, the leader of the family, but he needs his family to help him. And then even in the second film, you're right. It was, it was Elastigirl's time to shine. But in the end, you know, she still needed her family to help her. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, and you see this, I mean, you know, the struggle that she feels, um, right? She's ready to come home, and she's almost looking for an excuse to come home, right? Things 
things have to be going bad at home. That's because that's part of who she is, is the, is the person who fixes things around the house, right? That's been her part of her core identity up to that point in the, in the film. So, um, you know, it's, it's a real challenge to go out and in a sense, give up that responsibility or that piece of who you identify as to say, ah, you know what? They can get along. Okay. Without me. And there's a sense of loss there. I think, um, that that's at least in the undercurrent of the emotions there that maybe they don't need me so much. Well then how important am I? And all these sorts of questions naturally follow. So, um, I, you know, I think the movie does about as good a job as you could expect for this kind of a movie to introduce those sort of dynamics, like the, the emotions of them, uh, play well, I think. And, and they ring true, right? These are, these are the kinds of relationships and dynamics and challenges that, uh, everyday people face and they're elevated with the superpower element of course so do you think um does it kind of uphold family values do you think it undermines like that traditional sense of the family what do you what do you think not to not to ask that question but, well you know. you, but yeah i guess you did i you know i think it is family affirming in a very fundamental sense right i mean if you look at the core i relational aspects of each of these characters identities it's part of this fam this family it's the name of the film the incredibles I guess we were talking about what their last name even is. I guess they had revealed it in the first film, but it really strikes you when they, it comes out in this film that their last name is Parr. That you think of them as the Incredibles. It's a unit, right? So they are all individual. They have their individual gifts. Jack-Jack obviously is a special <laughs> challenge too, but uh, um, an opportunity there as well. But uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the one of the key themes of these two films is, is uh, the coherence of this family unit. And how much better off society is when they're acting as that coherent family union. Right. So this goes back to the legality question, what the trade-offs are. Um, I mean, I do think you know, one of the clear lessons of the film is that that um, when people are free to maximize their gifts and the ways that they can serve other people, we're all made better off. But there's a sense in which there are trade-offs, there are dangers that go along with it, there are risks in the first scene of the film, you get you get the mole guy or whatever who's trying to steal the stuff from the bank, and you get a very corporate response at one point, right? Like it would be better if you just hadn't done anything, because the cost would have been minimized. Um, right, we have the actuarials. That. Yeah, that's yeah. what insurance is for, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it raises some larger issues about the the challenges of an open and dynamic kind of economy and society, right? What we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what powers Jack Jack is going to manifest. And so it takes a certain kind of anti-fragility or a certain kind of constitution, both at the individual and the social level to be open to those kinds of things. Um, the result is that we are all better off when we're open to those sort of things, but there it's a real challenge. So talking about trust, and this is our last question here. So it, the villain was kind of unique in this film in that rather than just seeking to hurt people, mm -hmm. they, their goal is really to undermine people's trust. They, they didn't do a whole lot of damage, but they were really seeking to undermine people's trust in, in society and other people. Why, why do you think, how, how significant is that? Well, real significant. I don't know that it was developed all that. I mean, they didn't spend enough time, I think, in the film to really develop it, but I think there's a, a a kernel there of a, like you said, a really interesting take on a, on a villain who at some level perceives that the core of the extended order in the, in the modern society really has to do with trust at the level of impersonality, right? So that the stranger that you meet on the street, isn't going to push you in front of a car or try to steal your money or whatever. Um, 
And there's a there's an exchange that's evocative of this in the film, right? Where she's talking to Elastigirl and saying, "Why would you trust me? You don't even know me, right?" Well, and the market answer is, "Well, because of our incentives are aligned, and you know the the market uh, gives us reasons to trust one another and to serve one another beyond." Uh, a kind of angelic altruism or something like that, which we should aspire to, of course, but it's not that realistic. So there's a sense in which the character, the the villain perceives something that's really deep and true about um, the diversity and the pluriformity and the complexity of modern society and how trust is implicit in that system and a way to undermine it in a way that maybe is not that effective, like, but it really, at least she identifies something that uh, holds things together. Right, absolutely. Jordan, thank you so much for being here with us. I gotta say, I love your uh, Captain America socks there. <laughs> yeah, he's the, he's the moral compass of, uh, of the Marvel Universe. You can always trust Captain America. That's for right. Sure. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Jordan Baller on this new Incredibles film. You should go check out his article. This is Jenna Suhita and Victoria Antrim on Radio Free Acton. Thanks for listening. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you so much to all our listeners out there. And if you're interested in learning more about the Acton Institute, you can visit our website at actonacton.org. Also, I want to thank our interns, Jenna Suhita and Victoria Antrim, for having joined our podcast today. We're lucky to have so many fantastic interns working at Acton this summer. And on a side note, if you or someone you know is interested in Acton's internship programs, you can apply at acton.org internships. Lastly, if you liked what you heard today, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.